Father, as we gather together on this Sunday morning, we're thankful for this time of the year in which we are particularly reminded of the birth of our Savior. We're grateful, Lord, that we have that opportunity to freely celebrate the birth of Christ. Lord, I pray that we will be people who constantly celebrate that birth in our hearts day by day, not only his birth, but his death and his resurrection. Oh, Lord, that Christmas and Easter and and these different uh, times of the year that we celebrate these specific events might be truly a part of our thinking at all times, that we might be uh, representatives here of what it is that you are doing on this planet. Father, we recognize that we live in a world that seems to be rapidly decaying and conditions are serious in many parts of the world. Father, help us to be people who are grateful for what you have done and are doing in us and through us and help us at the same time to be even as Abraham was in this 18th chapter of Genesis, an intercessor for those who are in great need out there in the world today. Now, Father, bless those that are away from us today. Grant to them protection and uh, strength and a safe return. And for those that are visiting here and will be traveling elsewhere shortly, we pray for your blessing upon them. Now, strengthen us through this time. May the Word of God be living uh, as we study it this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Genesis chapter 18. We began last week in the 18th chapter looking at the first eight verses. And we discovered that this is yet another appearance of God to Abraham. Abraham was one individual in Scripture who was able to have an encounter with God in, in, that, that occurred in a physical way multiple times. And this is one of those appearances. Only this time, God doesn't appear as uh, in whatever form he appeared before. It isn't very specific in most of the encounters. But in this particular instance, we're told that he appears as a wayfaring stranger with a couple of others with him who obviously we, we determined from the chapter and from the following chapter were angels. If you remember, those of you who were here last week, In the first part of this passage, Abraham was resting in his tent, which was the only logical thing to do because it was the heat of the day when the sun was beating down most intensely and it can do so very significantly in that part of the world. And as he was looking through the door of his tent, the entrance to his tent, he saw these three people traveling, whether it was on the road or through the countryside, we can't determine here. And he thought, certainly in his mind, these people are out of their minds by traveling in the heat of the day. And so he went out to invite them in to uh, his little homestead there and to put them on a blanket in front of his door, uh, the door of his tent, under the shade of a terebinth, uh, an oak-like tree, where he was going to entertain them. He was going to serve them drink and food and give them an opportunity to rest in the shade. And the only thing they had to give in response was to visit with him. Something that uh, we do, especially at this time of the year, but maybe not with the same uh, energy that Abraham did. As we noted last week, they didn't have the means of gathering information. They didn't have the means of discovering what was going on in other parts of the world that we have today. And the only way you learned about anybody else and anything else was for someone to come through and you talk with them. What's very interesting about that is that uh, that has been true throughout most all of history until really the modern age, until the age of electronics. The only way you really could find out what was going on in the world was to talk to someone else who had talked to someone else. And of course, as you know, you don't always get the straight information that way, but you get some idea of what's going on in the world. And so, what we have is another theophany. And beginning with verse 9 of this particular passage, we have an explanation of the purpose of this theophany. Let's read verses 9 through 15. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. 
And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abram, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. It's rather obvious from this particular passage that at least a portion of the purpose for this theophany was to confirm to Abraham, but more than to Abraham, to Sarah, the truth that a son will finally come. The promised son was yet to come, and now the confirmation is being given that he will be here in a year. She had been there, obviously, when Abraham brought the visitors. We are not told whether she was introduced to the visitors here. We assume that she probably was. But at the time this conversation takes place, she was back in the tent doing whatever it was she needed to do. Now remember, he had first come, Abraham had brought the strangers, and he'd run into Sarah and said, get some, some oil and some, and some flour together and, and whip up some, some bread. Uh, we're going to need it because we have these strangers visiting with us. And so she was obviously busy uh, doing that, and the bread had been brought forth. And she was back in the tent. Now, what's interesting here is that she wasn't present when the question was asked in terms of being physically before the two individuals. In fact, we're told she was in behind the tent doorway, behind the one who was speaking at this particular event. Now, Sarah had no idea who these people were. Of course, Abraham didn't either at first. We know because in the very first verse of chapter 18, it says, Now the Lord appeared to him. And that introduces us to the whole uh, situation here. We know that God is appearing here. But Sarah and, and Abraham were unaware at this time of who these men were. And so when one of them says, well, next year at this time, I'm going to come back and your wife Sarah is going to have a baby. <laughs> Sarah heard this. He said it loud enough for uh, Sarah to hear inside the tent. And she laughed. To her, it was ludicrous. I'm going to have a baby this year next time. I mean, who's this guy anyway? I've never seen him before. Who does he think he is? Now, it's interesting that Moses gives reasonableness to Sarah's reaction here. Moses describes the fact that uh, she was old. And Abraham was old too. I mean, after all, at this particular juncture, they were 89 and 99. Usually that's past childbearing. It definitely is past childbearing in the time in which we live. But even in that time, it was past the normal year, years of childbearing. Now, what's interesting is, if you look behind this, the um, words here, Sarah says in uh, verse 12, After all, I have become old. Now, what's interesting here is that the Hebrew wording here makes it very, very clear what kind of old she's talking about because the, uh, another interpretation of the word became old or that's translated became old can mean withered and falling apart like an old garment. I mean, she was talking about old, old, you know, unable at all to possibly bear a child. Now, the real identity of the visitor begins to be manifested to both Abraham and Sarah. First of all, to Sarah, because Abraham had no idea that Sarah had laughed uh, inside the tent there because we're told in the passage she laughed inwardly. She laughed in her heart. She didn't go, ha, ha, ha. You know, she laughed inside that, at this idea. And so Abraham, of course, doesn't know what's going on here. But... She finds out very quickly. Look at verse 
13, it says, And the Lord said to Abraham, again, identifying the one who is doing the speaking here, God is speaking, Yahweh is speaking to Abraham. Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am old? The real identity is clearly given at that point. But Sarah begins to realize that this is no ordinary man out there because, first of all, she had laughed in her heart. She's the only one who knew that she had laughed, and yet that person out there standing in front of Abraham knew that she had laughed because he asked, why did Sarah laugh? He had read her heart. He had read her mind. He had read her thoughts. This must be an angel or God himself. And notice how it impacts her. She's seized by fear here, as you might be too, I suppose. And she denied that she laughed. Now, we have to realize this is not a premeditated thought. This was simply a knee-jerk reaction. Have you ever been caught in that situation where somebody catches you doing something you know you ought not to do and you instantly deny it, <laughs> but you're caught cold-handed or, or red-handed, I, I guess it is? It's illogical when you think about it. If God could read her mind, and God knew what she was thinking, God knew what she had done, what's the purpose of denying it? It's sort of like the fact that you and I know that God knows our, our innermost being. And God knows what we say and what we think. And so what's the use of trying to cover it up? What's the use of trying to deny to God that we are doing what we're doing or, or hoping that God doesn't really know that our motivation is this when we're trying to make it look like our motivation is that? What's the purpose? God knows. God understands. God is not hoodwinked by our rationale. What we see here, though, is a clear example of God's mercy and grace. What does he say? He does rebuke her. He does say, you did laugh. And of course, that cuts it right off. She, she makes no further protestation because God has caught her clearly. God knew her heart, though. And God makes no further point of this. Why? Because God knew that down in Sarah's heart, she was not rebelling against God. She was not refusing the will of God in this particular situation. In fact, all she was doing was reacting within the framework of human knowledge and experience. This is an impossible thing. It never happens. And so it was logical for her to laugh. How can it be? It just can't happen as far as she knew and as far as she had ever experienced. Now, we have to remember, Abraham had, had several miraculous encounters with God, right? We've read several of them, all the way back to the 12th chapter of Genesis. As you go through these chapters, uh, Abraham has one miraculous encounter with God after the other. Is Sarah there in these encounters? No, she's not. Sarah knows the face-to-face -face confrontation of God of Abraham with God only secondhand. She was not part of them directly. Therefore, she needed the teaching which is given in the 14th verse. Is anything too difficult for Yahweh? Is anything too difficult for God? She needed to hear that and she needed to know that because she had no other framework from which to understand what God had said here. This particular question, is anything too difficult for the Lord, is a question that you and I must all resolve in our own thinking too. We have all got to come to the place whether we say yes or no. We've got to respond to that question personally. Is anything too hard for God? J.B. Phillips wrote a book called, Your God is Too Small. And the whole thesis of the book deals with the fact that we tend to put God in a box. We put him right here, and we describe his limits. This is what God can do, and beyond that, God cannot work. Now, that's not based upon the teaching of Scripture. That's based upon our own human framework, our own understanding, our own experience of what we believe God can do. And so you and I have to come to this issue and deal with it ourselves. What is there that God can do, and what is it that God will do in our lives? Is, are there things that God cannot do for us? Are there things that God is not able to accomplish in our lives? Well, 
Let's look at a few other verses in Scripture, passages, that uh, deal with the same issue. Probably one of the best known is in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17. In fact, we even have a popular chorus based on this particular passage. Jeremiah speaking in a prayer says, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and by thine outstretched arms. Nothing is too difficult for thee. If God made the universe, if God put all the stars in space, if God made the planet earth and put people on it, is there anything that's too hard for God to do? We ask, O oh Lord, please, if you possibly can, save my uncle who's a drunk. I know it's probably not possible for you to do that, but if you possibly could. You know. Is anything too difficult for God? As astronomers probe space today, and as they receive responses from pulsars and quasars and all the other SARS out there, they discover how vast is the universe, how monstrous is the universe. I can remember from even uh, the days when I was a young person, I can remember for that far back even, that the very idea that there were stars out there, stars that were as big in diameter as is our solar system. You know, our sun is just a puny little thing in the middle, and it goes all the way out at least to Pluto, billions and billions of miles, and know that there are stars that are that far across that exist out there. And you think, whoa. You know, if God can build all of this and he has a name for it all, is anything too difficult for him? Luke chapter 1, verse 36. Very, very similar incident. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now, this is a direct connection back. Now, obviously, <laughs> uh, Sarah couldn't know about it because it would happen 1,800 years later. But it is a direct parallel. Uh, God is able to bring life from death, uh, even as he did for Sarah. And then, also in the 19th chapter of Matthew, verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking upon them, Jesus said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. We need to be sure we don't put God in any kind of a box. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. Our limitations are not God's limitations. He's able to do anything that he chooses to do. It's th this, this phrase seems so um, important to me that there is nothing that God cannot do except that he will not do. Nothing that God cannot do except that which he will not do. And of course, God will not sin. And God will not violate the free will that he has given to you and to me. It is his, so many people have a real struggle with this, this, this free will and the sovereignty of God issue. And there's no struggle at all. God, by his sovereign power, has chosen to give free will. So what's the problem? It is an expression of his sovereignty that he has given to us the power to accept or to reject what it is that God has said and what it is that God has done. But God looks deep into the heart, and that's what was Sarah's salvation at this point. Because deep in Sarah's heart was a heart of belief. She couldn't understand how this could be, but inside she wanted it. She wanted a son. 
She wanted God's will. She just didn't understand how this all fit together. And, and thus her laugh was not a laugh of unbelief. It was a, bla a laugh of lack of understanding, misunderstanding of what God intended to do. You and I must believe that God is going to do what we ask Him to do, provided we ask Him in submission to His will. One of the best examples of that, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And most of us are familiar with the 14th chapter of Mark, which I think illustrates one of the important principles of prayer, even though some like to deny this. As you probably are aware of, there are churches out there which are commonly referred to as health and wealth uh, teaching churches, uh, where all, just because you're a Christian, you're supposed to be healthy and, and you're supposed to be wealthy. And if you aren't, it's because you don't have faith. Well, Scripture just simply does not support that principle at all. That's not to say that Christians can't be healthy and Christians can't be wealthy. But it is not a God-given right to those things simply because we are the children of God. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus illustrates an important principle. In verse 35, He went a little beyond them and fell to the ground, began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass by Him. And He was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for Thee. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. The very principle of prayer. Uh, you and I don't know how to pray often, do we? Scripture tells us that. Uh, and so we take things before God and we ask for certain things. But our attitude always needs to be, Lord, this is the way we understand it and this is the way we ask it, but what your will is what we want. May your will be done. Now, I don't, I don't believe that we strengthen faith if we put if in front of everything we ever ask. But we do need to remember that the Scripture tells us, and this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything, what? According to His will, we have what we ask. And I think that is a, a powerful principle which comes through here. Nothing is impossible with God. God can do all things, but we don't know what is right in many instances. And therefore, it is up to us to submit to His will that He will bring about His perfect plan and His perfect purpose. This brings us to one of the, what I think is one of the most exciting accounts of the Old Testament, but certainly of the book of Genesis. As we come to the account of Abraham the intercessor in the 16th cha uh, 18th chapter beginning at the 16th verse, let me just read through verse 21. Then the men arose from there and looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him in order that he may command his children, and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. If not, I will know. Three men, to all appearances, three men rise from the meal. They have visited with Abraham. They're going about their way now. The heat of the day has passed. It's on towards the evening. They are purposing to travel on as far as Abraham knows. But Abraham already knows now that there's something about these individuals that is not your typical Bedouin traveler. There's been an expression here to indicate that there is a supernatural character to these individuals. And so Abraham, as they arise to, to purpose to go, Abraham rises and walks with them to send them on their journey. Very characteristic activity, uh, an expression of Bedouin hospitality. Go a little ways with your traveler. Uh, don't just wave them off at the door, but walk a mile or so 
with them on their way. And it seems that he probably went to the nearest hilltop. Now remember, we, we described this scene last uh, week. We're at the Oaks of Mamre. The Oaks of Mamre were on the outskirts of Hebron. Hebron is the highest town in Israel. It's located at the southern end of the, of the Judean highlands at a point over 3,000 feet in elevation. Uh, from there, because it's far south in the nation of Israel, in the land of Israel, you can look down into the Salt Valley, the Valley of the Dead Sea and of the Valley of Salt, the Vale of Sidim. And so that's what they did. They went to the nearest little hillock, and there they stood looking down into the valley to the east. Now, from that point over to Sodom and Gomorrah, at least as to where we believe Sodom and Gomorrah were, was a distance of about 40 miles as the crow would fly. So they're up there looking down through uh, this 40 miles of distance and a drop of 4,000 feet in elevation. Sodom and Gomorrah were located about 1,200 feet below sea level, down in the bottom of the Arabah. The, the valley through which the Jordan River flows and in which you find the Sea of Galilee and, and the Dead Sea. And if you've ever uh, paid much attention to the geography of the land, you know that the uh, Jordan River largely arises on Mount Hermon, which is over 9,000 feet above sea level. The river flows down into the uh, Hula Valley, which is just to the north of uh, the Sea of Galilee, and then into the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level. And then the river winds its way down through that little valley into the Dead Sea, and in the process it drops from 600 to 1,300 feet below sea level. So there's a 700-foot drop in elevation between the two seas. And the Dead Sea is at the lowest point of the Arabah. As you move out of the Dead Sea, either to the north or the south, or of course to the east or the west, you, you rise in, in elevation. But the Arabah still remains a, a valley that is below sea level all the way down to almost the Red Sea. As it approaches the Red Sea, obviously it has to rise to uh, sea level. And the Red Sea itself is located in a portion of that same rift system there. And so they're looking down 4,000 feet in elevation. It's sort of like standing on, on the north rim of the Grand Canyon and looking down into the bottom of it, except it's even further down to that particular elevation from Hebron. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma, Zeboim and Zoar were all visible probably from up there. They didn't have all the atmospheric pollution that we have today to, to mess up the atmosphere, except there may have been some natural pollution because of the petroleum seeps in that uh, particular area. Now, to Abraham, it brought back memories, certainly, because it was the people of those cities that he had just a few years before rescued. And he had led his whole household out to defeat Chedorlaomer, the uh, king that had come from Mesopotamia, and had carried off the population of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities. And Abraham had rescued them along with his nephew Lot a few years before. Now the Lord had come not only to rescue <coughs> the faith of Sarah, and to encourage her concerning the birth of the promised son. But the Lord had come to test the faith and the character of Abraham. Now when it comes to discussion of testing of faith, we need to realize that when God tests faith, it is not like I test students at the college. I test them to discover whether they know something because I don't know if they know it. God knows if you know it. God tests us to strengthen us, to make us strong, that we know that we do believe, that we know that we have faith, that we know that we have character. But God, God already knows that. God knows all things. So when God comes to test Abraham, it is not because God doesn't know something. It's because he wants Abraham to know what his own character is and what his own faith is and who the God is he's serving so that he will then in turn be able to teach those who will come as his descendants about God and faith and character. So we have the, uh, the, the uh, picture described here. In verse 17, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? 
Now he's referring to Abraham as, as a, uh, you know, in a way, I mean, I don't talk to my wife and say, well, shall I tell Lois <laughs> something, you know? I don't talk to my wife like that. So obviously he wasn't talking to Abraham. Who was he talking to? The two angels. And he was saying to them, well, shall I tell Abraham? Now he wasn't saying it like this, shall I tell Abraham? He was saying, here's Abraham walking right along with him and he's talking to the angels, shall I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? Well, you know, the words were obviously intended for Abraham. They were for Abraham's ears to hear. And so the pronouncements of verses 17 through 21 were given for the sake of Abraham. It's the beginning of the test. There are two key concepts here that are important to understand as to why God does this. First of all, God said in this passage that the blessing of the nations was to come through Abraham. Now, that was not a new concept. It wasn't even new to Abraham. Because you go clear back to the 12th chapter of Genesis where God first met with Abraham and he told him that in so many words. The blessing of the nations will come through you, through your descendants. And so God is reiterating here. The witness of God's people, the descendants of Abraham, and the birth of Messiah, those two factors would be the blessing of the nations. The nations of the world would be blessed because of the witness of God's people and the birth of the Messiah, both of which would come through Abraham, through his seed. In effect, therefore, Abraham was high priest of the nations. In this sense, Abraham was high priest of the nations because through him would come Messiah and through him must come the witness of God to the world. So in that sense, he is high priest, and he needs to be prepared to intercede. And he has to learn intercession. Secondly, Abraham was to model righteousness and justice. In order to reach, to, to teach his descendants the ways of the Lord, he was going to have to set an example. How many times are we told this? How many times do, does the scripture teach us that you can't just say it, you've got to live it? In James, we're told not to just be hearers of the word, but what? Doers also. If all we do is hear it, it can just wash off us like the proverbial water off a duck's back. But if we do it, then it's ours. We know it, we believe it, we live according to it. So Abraham was to model righteousness and justice. He was to set the example. So how was this going to be serious with him? By God demonstrating the seriousness of sin. Now I've made this point several times before because I think Genesis keeps pointing it out over and over again. How serious really is sin? It's pretty serious to the point where God obliterated everybody but eight people. Sounds pretty serious to me. And now another point of this seriousness is being made. By Abraham understanding how serious sin really is to the human condition, Abraham will be able to become a much more fervent teacher of righteousness. I think we've all had the experience, uh, or at least known of the experience, where someone tries to teach something from a textbook, but another person tries to teach that same truth from life from experience. And the difference between the two can be very, very great. The one can teach it kind of cold and, and uh, you know, what we might assume is uh, uh, in a professional way, whereas the other person teaches it from the heart because they know it's true. And it makes a big difference on the audience. I've sat through academic discussions and they can be pretty boring. Even if the person is a professional, in fact, sometimes if you ever get the chance, you probably have, many of you have, uh, to, to listen to a, a big name in a certain area, and sometimes you listen to them, oh, you're just bored to tears, because they may be a great writer, but they're a lousy speaker, or uh, they don't know how to put two thoughts together that come across orally like they can uh, on the written page, and I've had that experience. But here is a man who is going to know from direct encounter the reality of what God has said. 
and he'll be able to teach it to his descendants. Abraham would clearly see how God must deal with the cancer of sin. There's got to be radical surgery, and this is pretty radical as you read on through the 19th chapter of Genesis particularly. The statement in verses 20 and 21 thus was for Abraham's benefit. And no, 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 notice the wording of these verses. The Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now, go down from where? Well, from the hilltop down into the valley, and see if they've done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. If not, I will know. I mean, this is God. <laughs> Why does he say this? Well, it's, it's anthropomorphically play, uh, put, so that Abraham can relate to it. God knows what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. God knows the heart of every individual in that city. God knew the wickedness of that city. He didn't have to go down and look and see, well, yeah, they're really as bad as I heard. No. God knows already. So he, he puts it this way so that Abraham can relate to it. That's what the whole Bible is about. God puts it so that we can relate to it. The whole book is full of anthropomorphisms. Uh, you know, the eyes of God, the hand of God, the finger of God, you know, the heart of God. Why? Because we can relate to that. We can't relate to, to a spirit we can't see, can't touch, can't know anything about. And that's why God is given uh, in, in, uh, in physical form from time to time in Scripture. So we can relate to Him. And so He does here. Now the question that we might ask is, why had God's long-suffering patience with the cities of the plain come to an end? Why does God at this point blow the whistle on Sodom and Gomorrah and Zeboim and Adma and theoretically should have included also Zoar, but didn't as we will see in the 19th chapter? Are we not taught that God's patience is an ending? That God is long-suffering? Yeah, Scripture teaches us that. And there are many passages which bluntly state that. With whom is God long-suffering? With His people, with you and with me, if we're in the kingdom. He is long-suffering with us. His patience will never come to an end with us because we are His people. We are His chosen ones. But when it comes to the unmitigated sin of the world, God's patience does come to an end. There is a point at which God will say, thus far and no more. And we read about that clear back in the sixth chapter of Genesis, where God said, my spirit will not always strive with men. And then God blotted out the world. Well, that's pretty serious. That seems like an end of patience uh, to me. There is a coming day, which is called the day of judgment. That sounds like the end of patience. <laughs> there is a place called hell. That also sounds like the end of patience. There is a point at which God will deal with sin. He will not abide its existence forever. In chapter 15, God told, his, told, told Abraham that his descendants would one day lived for 400 years enslaved in a distant land, and of course, Egypt. And that 400-year period would be a period of time in which God would allow the Amorites to exist so that their iniquity might become full, might be able to develop to its full extent where they will then be judged by the coming of Israel and the conquest will occur. These people are part of those Amorites. The people in Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim and Zoar, the five cities of the plain, are part of the Amorites. Why are they not being given those 400 years? Why is God blowing the whistle on them seemingly prematurely? Well, I have listed, uh, as you'll note on your outline there, uh, a couple of possible reasons. First of all, let's turn to the passage which seems to throw quite a bit of light on who these people were in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel 16, 49. Behold, 
This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, meaning the other cities there, had arrogance, abundant food, careless ease, but she did not help the poor and the needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. So God explains here why he destroyed Sodom and her sisters, Gomorrah and the other cities. Because it says they had arrogance, they had abundant food, careless ease, they were not willing to share it with anyone, they didn't want to help anyone, they were haughty, and they committed abominations. Now, the general idea is that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and the other two cities only because of their perversions. And the impact, of course, of this has carried on to our day. We use the word sodomy in our particular language to refer to a perversion, a sexual perversion, which we have no idea can, can prove that it originated in Sodom. But that is considered to be one of the activities of the sodomites, and therefore that name has been applied. Now, they were heinous perversions. As you look at the 19th chapter and you really get a, a sense of what these people were like, it's hard to believe how vile people can become. I guess in our society it's not all that hard to believe, as we see it around us all the time, it seems. But those who say that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for these perversions are talking about the symptoms and not the causes. Those physical sexual perversion manifestations were just the symptoms. They were not the cause. They were not the root of the real problem. The real problem was in their total self-centered arrogance and haughtiness. And this was what brought their doom. Think about it for a minute. Why was Satan pitched out of heaven? Why was La Lucifer cast down for some kind of a little perversion? No, because he arrogated himself to equality with God because of his self-centered arrogance, his haughtiness. That's why he was thrown out of heaven. Why were the people at the Tower of Babel dispersed? Why did God confound the languages? Because they were doing some kind of perverted thing? No, because they sought to exalt themselves and, and to become gods in their own eyes. That is what brought their downfall. You read through the life of our Lord Jesus Christ and about the woman caught in adultery, he said, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. He says to her, no man condemns you, neither do I. What does he say to the Pharisees though? Were they caught in adultery? Well, he implies, of course, <laughs> in various occasions that, sure, they do those kinds of things. But that wasn't what he attacked the Pharisees for, was it? It was for their arrogance, for their pride, for the fact that they knew the way and everybody else was a dog. That's the great sin that God deals with. And that's, one, that's the reason Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Because you could be sure that perversions were found in many other cities, even in Jerusalem. But such an arrogance and a haughtiness and a self-centeredness brought their destruction. Secondly, the cities had no excuse for their rebellion. No excuse whatsoever. Because they had had opportunity. Not as much as other cities would have, and we'll make reference to them in a moment. But what had God done for Sodom and Gomorrah? God had delivered the people. Chedorlaomer and the armies from Mesopotamia had come in, defeated the armies of Sodom and Gomorrah, and carried the whole population off into captivity except the few who had escaped. Carried everybody north. And Abraham had ridden forth with his little alliance, and uh, God had given him the victory, and he had rescued all those people, people from Sodom, people from Gomorrah, probably people who were rescued, uh, probably people were rescued, who show up in the 19th chapter of Genesis standing outside of Lot's door demanding that the two men be given to them. I bet you they're, well, yeah, I bet you, that <laughs> some of those men were people who had been rescued by Abraham. They had witnessed, many of them, the encounter with Melchizedek. They were there when Abraham 
bowed before Melchizedek. So they had an enlightening. They were given truth. Therefore, they should have been repentant and humble. After all, if it hadn't been for God, they would have spent their lives as slaves in a foreign land. And you and I can only, I suppose, from what we've read, have a little bit of an idea of what it was like to be a slave in the ancient world. It was pretty bad. Not that it's good to be a slave today either. But uh, you were basically treated however your owner chose to treat you. And that could be pretty awful. In addition, they had the presence of Lot. We might say, yeah, right. They had the presence of Lot. Now, it's true, his witness was weak. But there nevertheless was a witness there, as weak as it might seem to be. Because the depth of the iniquity was so great that even a, just a little glimmer would cast some light. And, and, you know, we wouldn't know from the passage in Genesis that there was any light at all. But Peter tells us that there was some light. We turn to 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 7. And if he rescued, what kind of lot? Righteous lot. Oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Now, when we look at the 19th chapter of Genesis, we're going to say, huh. Peter knows something about Lot we can't determine from Genesis, that's for sure. Because God obviously enlightened Peter's mind that he might understand something of the true character of Lot that didn't seem to show through in the events as we read about them. There was a witness there. It was weak, but there was a witness. And for that reason, they had no excuse. Now, what's really frightening is the fact that if, if you can... Not that it's necessarily good to think about it, but if you can kind of get a feeling for what life was really like in Sodom and Gomorrah, what the people were really like, and as again, I keep saying the 19th chapter because that's the one in which describes what takes place in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's frightening to think that there are cities, historically, that are worse. Let me read about a couple of them. Matthew, chapter 10. Again, this really drives at the heart of what God is after. God is not after the symptom. He's after the heart of the problem. Matthew 10, verse 14. And whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake off the dust of your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, was that a city that was known for its perversion? No, he is simply saying those that boldly and baldly reject the word, the witness of Christ, that's the most intolerable thing. And it further is illustrated for us in the next chapter, 11 verses 23 and 24. And you, Capernaum, beautiful little city on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades. For if the miracles occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have repented, remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Capernaum, the home of Peter. If you cross the Sea of Galilee today, you go into the little town of Capernaum, there's a little place they've excavated which they call the House of Peter. And you can look and see, this might have been where Peter lived, we don't know. But that was Capernaum. And you can go to the synagogue there and you find a synagogue built on top of a synagogue. And all the synagogue that you'll see primarily displayed before you in ruins there is two to three hundred years after the time of Christ. The foundations are built on a synagogue of Christ's time. The very synagogue in which Christ may have preached. 
And yet, because that city rejected the witness of Christ, it will be harder on the people of Capernaum of that day in the judgment than for the land of Sodom with all of their perversions. The root is rebellion and unbelief. God's mercy and grace was upon Sarah, even though she laughed, because she was not in rebellion. Rebellion is what God deals with, because as the scripture tells us in Samuel, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. It's of the evil one. The wasting of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain was not to be just another event of history, but was to serve as a great lesson to all generations that would follow. The lesson would be referred to numerous other times, seven other times in the Old Testament and six in the New Testament. And um, I'll, I'll just flip back to it here. I didn't read that whole passage in Peter. The sixth verse of 2 Peter 2 uh, says, For, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction, thus reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. Why did he reduce the city to ashes? That they might be an example to all who would later choose to live in an ungodly manner. This is the fruit of unrighteousness. Well, as we come to the end of what we're going to talk about today, I think it's interesting to think about the names Sodom and Gomorrah. The name Sodom means scorched or burnt. The name Gomorrah means a heap, like a dump. We might say, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> we can understand how Sodom might be called scorched because in the land around it were these asphalt seeps and, and probably fire, natural fires occurred and so forth. But there's no reason we know at all to call Gomorrah a heap. <laughs> I live in Heapsville, you know. The, the question then is, were these cities actually named post-destruction? And maybe we don't even know the names of the cities as they were called by the people who lived there at the time. And we simply know them historically by burnt and a heap because that's what they became. And thus, that's what they've been ever, forever known as since that particular time. Well, next week we're going to look at the beginning at verse 22 and uh, see Abraham at his very best. Abraham the intercessor who stands almost literally toe-to-toe -to -toe with God and intercedes on behalf of the people of those wicked cities, asking God to spare them. That's God's heart working through Abraham.